the one who helped Jesus in his ministry, the one who raised Jesus from the dead, is the same one who is with us and who propels us in our mission as well. And so today what we're going to do is look at, um, as well from John, that disciples are not only have a helper, but we're called to love. That's how our interactions are to be with everyone we come in contact with. So turn your Bibles to John 13. We brought most of this series out of the book of John, and it's referenced, this passage is actually referenced back in John 15, but we're going to go back to the one that John 15 references. In John 15, when we first began the series, talked about abiding in Christ. The second message was about abiding in Christ by abiding in his love. Now we're going to look back and see the command that this is grounded in. So John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38. This is God's holy, inspired word. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, so now also I say to you, where I am going you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this instruction that you gave to us through Jesus. Jesus, thank you for giving us instruction through your disciples. Thank you that you highlighted what was most important about how we interact with each other in your final hours. God, I pray that we would hear from you. God, I pray that these words would not be familiar, but they would be new to us. I pray that you would speak to our hearts and minds and enliven us. Holy Spirit, make us alive to enable us to hear your words. Bring conviction as a gift. Bring encouragement. Bring hope. And God, bring change through your spirit. We pray these things, Lord. Would you empower me to preach and empower all of us to hear from you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I recently read a book about Abraham Lincoln. It was called Killing Lincoln. And, and spoiler alert, he is dead already. But in Killing Lincoln, it, it told the story about how a couple weeks before Lincoln was assassinated, he had a really vivid dream. And I found out all kinds of details about how Lincoln had all these kind of moments where he had this idea of what was coming before he was assassinated. And he had this vivid dream that the president had been assassinated and he saw the president lying in state in the White House on a funeral bier. And, and then several days before he died, he shared this dream with his cabinet and with his family and it disturbed them, understandably so. And then Several days leading up to it, he started doing things that were like that of a man who was in his final days. And then his last day of life, 
He, he wrote some notes that would have been odd for him to write, that would have been as if he was writing final instructions, and he had a prolonged breakfast with his son, which he had not done in the four years, really, that he'd been in the White House. He, he took time out to have a prolonged breakfast with his son, and he spent time riding around the city in a kind of a joyride in a carriage with his wife. All things that looked like a man was in his final days and his final moments, and he knew it. And it was kind of eerie to read the account and, and then how now his words that he communicated and the things he did in his final days, how they actually took on greater significance and meaning in light of his assassination. Jesus really knew. He truly knew what was coming. He knew he would be killed. He knew what was coming to him. He actually chose the path he was on. He knew exactly what was about to happen to him, every detail. He knew the suffering he would endure. He knew that he would bear our sins. He knew he would be killed for us. And he prophesied about that. He told his disciples about that. And by now, at this point in John, he has already told his disciples several times that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, and he will be handed over, and he'll be crucified and, and dead, and then he will be raised on the third day. Jesus knew what was about to happen. And what we have here is his final instructions, if you will, to his disciples. From John 13 all the way to John 17, it's his final words that he spoke with his disciples. It's his upper room discourse is what this is called. And in this upper room discourse, he wants to make sure he communicates what's most important. You know, if you were about to die, you knew what was coming. If you knew you were going to die tonight, what would you say to your loved ones? What would you say to your family? What would you want to communicate well, I know that I would want to communicate what's most important. I would want to communicate what would carry them through, what would be of lasting value, what, what would last their whole lives, what would carry them. And so what we have here is Jesus' words in this upper room discourse that we've been learning from in the last few weeks. And he tells them something really important. And it's a dramatic setting. You see, there is a weight and a meaning to his words that they get because he has just told them he's going to die. And they understand that. And now he wants to care for them and pass on to them what's of utmost importance. I want you to picture the scene for just a moment if you can. He's sitting in the upper room. They've just shared the Passover meal with his disciples. He has just broken bread and handed it to them and said that this is his body that is going to be broken for them and to eat of it. And then he hands them the cup, the juice, and he, he passes it around to them and they all drink from the same cup. And he says, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant which is shed for you. And so it's a very sobering moment, a very shocking moment. The disciples have never experienced that in the Passover meal. That would have been very foreign in the context of a Passover meal. And now, he's just said that one of them would betray him. And his disciples are really confused. There's a lot of murmuring in the room. They're talking amongst themselves. And, and Peter's like, well, well, who is it, God? And he's like, who, who is it? And John's asking him, leans over, says, who is it? And Jesus says that it's the one with whom he dips the bread into the cup and he'll hand it to him. And then he hands it to Judas, but they're really confused and they don't really get it. And then he says something cryptically to Judas and he says, what, you have, what you're now going to do, go and do quickly. But nobody knew why they said that to him. And so now that's where we find this passage. It says, when he had gone out, referring to Judas, 
So it's in the midst of this kind of shocking moment, this dramatic moment that Jesus shares these instructions. And he waits till the betrayer leaves because now his true disciples are with him. And so he says, now, now the son is glorified. Now that I'm sealing the deal by sending off my betrayer, the son is glorified and the father is glorified in the son's self-giving. The father is glorified as the son gives himself in sacrifice. God the Father is glorified. When you see the love of Jesus by sending his own betrayer to go and betray him, when you see the love of Jesus giving himself willingly, not only is Jesus glorified, but the Father is glorified. Jesus is so closely united with the Father that he can say that if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify in himself. And he says he'll glorify him at once. And then he kind of changes the tone. And he gets really personal with them. And he uses a word that he's never used in the Gospels before. That's never recorded in the Gospels. And he calls them something. He says, little children. And this is meant to be a very endearing address. This is now a shift, a fatherly instruction. This is like a father sharing his last will and testament. And he says, little children, very lovingly, very tenderly, says, yet a little while I am with you. You'll seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so I say to you, where I'm going, you can't come. And they didn't understand that. He was talking about where I'm going. I'm going to die for you. You won't see me in a little while because I'm going to go and die. Now, they, they should have made the connection because he's already told them he's going to die for them. But he says, just a little while we have, and they only really had a few hours after this. They had a few more hours that night. He had his discourse. He prayed with them. They left the upper room. They went and prayed in Gethsemane, and he was betrayed by Judas. This is the last communications, and he says, you just have me a little while longer, and where I'm going, you can't come. And in light of his sacrificial death for them, he gives them something. He gives them a new commandment. This is his, his last commandment to them, his final commandment to them. And he says, a new commandment I give to you. And he says that you love one another. Now, if you think about it, that, that commandment doesn't seem really new to love one another. In fact, in the Old Testament, God, the first and greatest command about love was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And then the second was to love your neighbor like yourself. So it wouldn't have been new for them to hear that you're supposed to love somebody else. Love one another. Love your neighbor like yourself. That wouldn't have been new to them. But this was a fresh commandment in that sense. It was new, had a different context and quality because how he defines loving one another is different. It is new. It's a new way of loving that they would not have been familiar with before. And he says, a new commandment I give to you. I want you to love one another. And he tells them how. And it's really important. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you need to listen up. This is, this is his final commandment to his disciples before he went to be betrayed and he says, I want, I want you to love one another. And, and we can think, okay, well, I've heard that a hundred times before. But when he says, I want you to love one another, he tells us how. And I think when he told them how, it would have been surprising for them. And later on in life, they would have looked back after his death, and they would have gotten what he meant because he said, I want you to love each other like I have loved you. That is astounding that's a shocking kind of love. You see, loving your neighbor like yourself, that is comparatively easy. 
Now, it's, it's actually really hard. But compared to what Jesus is talking about, you know, I can love somebody like myself, but to love somebody like Jesus loves me, that's altogether more. That's, that's entirely new. That's entirely more than the idea of loving somebody like I love myself. You know, do unto others, you have them do unto you. Okay, we all get that. But hey, he raises the bar. He sets a new standard. He says, no, I want you to love each other with the same love that I've loved you with. And I want you to think about that. Most Christians know the command to love each other. But do we love each other like Christ? You ever thought about what that means? To love each other like Christ has loved us? What did that mean to the first disciples? They had, they had witnessed Jesus. They had seen him. They had heard him calling them. They had experienced him interacting with people. And they had seen what does it look like, not just to love in word, but to love in deed. And they were about to witness the greatest act of love ever. So when he says, I want you to love each other, like I've loved you. That's an astounding kind of love. That's a different kind of love. This is not the kind of love that the world loves with. And I bet they thought about and meditated in those words and it changed how they lived. And we know that because you can read in, in the letters to the churches that people like Peter wrote and James and Jude, you can see that this kind of love, it affected them. It's what compelled them to give their lives for each other. How would God want us to think about how Jesus has loved us? How would Jesus want us to think about how he's loved us? If you just look at who Jesus was and what he did, I think there's at least three major ways you can see Jesus' love for us in the Gospels. And the first thing we see in the Gospels is really he's, he has a kind of love. You see in the Bible that he has a love for us that is a choosing kind of love. Jesus has loved us with a choosing love. He loved us not because we loved him, but because he chose to set his affections on us. From the very beginning, Jesus chose to humble himself and become a man. He, he chose to come to earth to take man's place. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to take man's place. He didn't have to rescue mankind, and yet he chose to come to become a man to rescue mankind. And it tells us in John 3 that John, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's, that's the thing that motivated God to send Jesus, that motivated Jesus to come was his love, his choosing love for us, not a sense of obligation. He didn't have to love us, but he, he chose to. We rebelled against God. We deserved God's wrath and punishment, but God chose to save a people to rescue mankind. He chose to give up all of his rights and privileges. The son of man, he chose to humble himself. He chose to give up all of his rights and privileges that he has as God. He chose to give up all of his glory. He chose to relinquish all that. Why? Because he loves you. That's what love looks like. It looks like giving up rights and privileges. It looks like humbling yourself and choosing that willingly. And that's challenging, isn't it? How many of us... When we think of other people, do we think, you know what, I'm going to choose to love them, not because I'm attracted to them, not because I like them, not because they do things for me, and you know what, not because I'm going to get anything in return, but I'm going to choose to love them 
because God's loved me. That's a different kind of love. That's a challenging love. He chose to humble himself. That's the model that Paul gives us in Philippians when he says, consider our model in Jesus who didn't consider himself equal with God and didn't consider that he, he had to have the reputation that he deserved. And he humbled himself. He became a man. Love chooses to humble. Love chooses to pursue. Consider the example that we have in Ephesians 1. If you turn your Bibles, I don't think I have this one in the overheads for you, but turn your Bibles to Ephesians 1, if you will. In Ephesians 1, verse 4. Ephesians 1, verse 4, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. His love is a choosing love. And I love in 1 John 4, it says, that he in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why did God choose you? He didn't choose you because you were noble, because you were wise, because you were worthy. He chose you because of his love. He chose to humble himself. Everything Jesus did was a choice. Every action he took was motivated by love for those he came to save. He chose humility. He chose to serve. Think about the example they just had seen in the upper room right before this. If you have ever read the book of John, right before this happened, right before he sent Judas out, Jesus, he gets up in the middle of dinner At some point during the Last Supper, he gets up, he takes off his outer robes. They must have been wondering, what is he doing? This is not part of the Passover meal. He takes off his outer robes, he gets up, he gets a water basin, and he ties a towel around his waist, and he washes his disciples' feet. And he he cleans them, and it's a symbol and a sign of of the fact that he's going to serve and give himself to make them ultimately clean. But what they're seeing is this Love that chooses to serve. Everything that Jesus did was motivated by love. Every choice he made. He chose to obey his parents. He chose to obey God's laws. chose to even delay in healing Lazarus because he loved his disciples and he wanted them to believe. In John 11, I think we have this for you. It says in John 11 that Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died and for your sake. What does he mean? He says, Lazarus has died, and for your sake, he says, I'm glad I was not there. Now, he wasn't glad he wasn't wasn't there because he really wanted to see Lazarus die, or because he had some morbid interest in in Lazarus dying a painful death. No, that's not why. You see, love motivated Jesus to choose, to delay, because he had their greater good in mind. He wanted them to believe. He says, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. And then you see that he has compassion 
and he heals, raises Lazarus from the dead. All that he did was motivated by his choice to love. Why do we love people? Why do you love people? Why do you love your spouse? Why do you love your kids? Why do you love people in the church? That's provoking. We love, we're to love like Jesus loved, that was a choice, not motivated by self-interest, but motivated solely by his love for us. How about us? Are we, are we consciously, deliberately purposing to love? Is our love motivated by God's love for us? What motivates us? Are we considering how to love others deliberately? Are you considering how to love others purposefully? Are you considering how to humble yourself, how to, how to serve other people because of love for them, not of how they can reciprocate for you? Not only did Jesus love us with a choosing love, he's loved us with a compassionate love. He's not only loved us with a choosing love that chose us because of his love, he's, he's, mo- he's loved us with a compassionate love. He, wasn't, he, he didn't love us harshly. He didn't love us rudely. He loved us compassionately, and that's how he loved the disciples the entire time. And think about it. They took a lot of compassion. If you're reading through the New Testament, at times, you probably might be tempted to think, what in the world? How could his disciples relate to him that way? How do they not get it still? Until you think, you know what, we wouldn't have gotten it either. And yet, what a wonderful thing that he wasn't impatient with them. He was compassionate on them. He was compassionate. He was tender. That's how he interacted with strangers. That's how he interacted with the crowds. In Matthew 9, it tells us um, what consistently was how Jesus regularly interacted with the crowds. What motivated him was compassion. It says in Matthew 9, 35, it says that when he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's really good news because you know what? So often we are harassed. So often we are helpless. And yet Jesus was motivated by compassion to bring his word to the crowds. He's motivated by compassion to bring his word to us to have compassion on us. Consistently, that's what motivated Jesus. Matthew 14 tells us, it says that when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on him. And that was that compassion do? That compassion had motivated him. And it says, and he healed the sick. His compassion motivated him to speak his words to us. His compassion motivated him to heal. And then Matthew 15, it, it You see his compassion motivating him differently. He says, Jesus called his disciples says, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And ultimately that's a picture of the fact that Jesus doesn't want to turn any away hungry. All those who come to him hungry, he will satisfy. Why? Not because somehow we're worthy Not because the crowds deserve that, not because they even believe that he could feed them, but because he had compassion on them. He heals the demon-possessed man, I mean, the demon-possessed child of the man who came to him that Adam actually shared that scripture with us during worship. He didn't know that I planned to share that as well. In Mark 9, that man comes to Jesus really lacking faith. That man comes to Jesus in Mark 9, 22, and he says, but if you can, if you can do anything, 
Have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus answers him, if you can, really? You see, Jesus wasn't healing that man's son because of his great belief. He doesn't heal us because of our great belief. He doesn't love his disciples because we believe so strongly. It's his compassion that motivates him to heal us, to deliver us, to set us free. I love the picture in Luke 7. Not only does Jesus have crowds and compassion and he heals them and he feeds, he delivers. In Luke 7, he tells the story. It says, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, look, look at what he says. He had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. He saw her plight. He saw her grief. He saw how she was suffering, and he had compassion on her. It doesn't say he saw how worthy she was and how noble she was. It says he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still, and he said, young man, I say to you, rise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. What do we see here? We see a picture of compassion. All throughout Jesus' ministry, a compassion on the crowds, so he taught them. He has compassion on the crowds, so he feeds. He has compassion on the crowds, so he heals the sick. He has compassion, he delivers. He has compassion, he makes the dead alive. That's really a story of how Jesus relates to us. He has compassion on each and every one of us, and so he brings us his word. He has compassion on us. He heals our, our, all of our ills, all of our sicknesses. He heals our disease. He heals what's most wrong with us, our greatest, most wrong condition. He has compassion on us. He makes us alive. He delivers us. He sets us free. In the Old Testament, the prophet Micah prophesied about that compassion of God that would be demonstrated in Jesus. In Micah 7, he prophesies of how God would move through the Messiah. And he says, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. And I, and I love the language that it uses. It's very vivid. It says, he'll tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you've sworn to our fathers in the days of old. And then we know that in the Messiah, in Jesus, all of these things came true. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, all of our iniquities have been tread underfoot. All of our, our sins have been thrown into the depths of the sea. He has been faithful in his steadfast love to us just as he swore. The love of Christ, it's a faithful, steadfast love because of his compassion for us. You know, his, his parable of the Good Samaritan, it was a parable about love being motivated by compassion. When the prodigal son comes and returns home, he tells us what motivated the father in Luke 15. He says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him, not because the prodigal son deserved it. That's how Jesus receives us. That's how the father receives us back in Christ. It's because of compassion. And I love the picture in Isaiah 42 of 
of Jesus, Isaiah prophesied of the suffering servant, how he would treat people, how he would relate to us. These words are precious to us. These words are meant to be precious to us, to show us a picture of how Jesus relates to us. He says, behold, my servant, speaking of the Messiah, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. But then listen to this. It says, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. And here's the promise of how he relates to those who are broken. It says, a bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. That's the kind of love that Jesus loves us with. You ever feel like you're about to break, you're a bruised reed, you're, you're a, a faintly smoldering wick. He relates to us tenderly with compassion. Even his correction was loving. After he corrects Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, right after that, he takes Peter with him and he takes him up to the Mount of Transfiguration and lets Peter see his glory. He doesn't punish him. Which brings us really to the third way he loved his disciples. Not only did he love us with a choosing love and a compassionate love, he loves us with a continuing love. He loves us with a continuing love. Jesus continued to love faithfully. He continued to pursue his disciples. He continued patiently, even when they were thick-headed and didn't get it. And you know what? I'm really glad for that because I'm thick-headed. I don't get it. I'm not faithful. I don't understand at times. I'm confused. I don't get what Jesus says sometimes. I don't understand what he meant sometimes. And yet, he's compassionate. He's, he's continuing to be faithful to his disciples, to love even when we don't get it. He loves patiently, and that's our hope. He's patient with us in our weakness, in our sin, in our failings. He continues. He's persistent. He has a never-stopping kind of love. In Romans, it tells us that his, he, we, nothing will ever separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. He has a continuing love, a love that never is separated from us. He never stops. He never gives up loving. He didn't leave his disciples when they lacked faith and, and go to get new ones. When, when they argued about who was the greatest right before this, do you know that's the setting too? It's just unbelievable, the setting that he's talking to them in. The disciples, they just continually don't get it. And he's already told them again what's going to happen. He washes their feet. Um, he said that somebody's going to betray. They don't understand that. But right before that, they've just been arguing about who was the greatest. Hey, by the way, guys, I'm going to go. The son of man, I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life. And the third day, I must be raised. And then, and then they're thinking about, well, when you're raised, well, who's going to be ruling with you? Oh, by the way, wonder who the greatest is. They just totally missed the point. They were self-focused. Instead of listening to Jesus and, and focusing on what he's doing for them, they were thinking about how it's going to affect them and how that related to them and what their position is. But he's patient with them. Despite, despite their pride, he continues to love them faithfully. How do we love people who are proud? How do we love people who are thick? How do we love people who are frustrating to deal with? 
How do we love people that are hard to get along with, that, are, that we think just don't get it? How do we love people that when we tell them about our love for them, they turn around and make it all about them? How do we love people like that? Jesus continued to love them in their pride and blindness and selfishness. He continued to love them even though he knew they would deny him and all would fall away. And he told them that this same night. He says, you know, you will all fall away. We see that in another one of the Gospels. And he says, you, tonight, you'll all fall away. You'll all be scattered. He tells Peter, Peter has this, he doesn't get it even. Jesus is telling them that, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be with you. And by the way, I give you the, the final commandment to love each other like I've loved you. And what does Peter get? He misses that entirely. He doesn't even respond to that. He doesn't respond to Jesus' command to love like I've loved you. And Peter's like, but hang on, why can't I follow you? It's like, Peter, are you not listening? <laughs> if you're reading this passage, you think, wait a minute. Jesus has just said, a new commandment I've given to you. I want you to love each other just like I've loved you. So he's talking about his love for them. And Peter's like, why can't I follow you? I want to go too. I followed you all three years. Why can't I go now? And Peter's clueless. It's so often like us. And Peter says, I'll follow you. I'll, I'll follow you wherever you go. I've, I followed you wherever you go. And, and so Jesus says, no, Peter, you can't follow me where I'm, where I'm going. And Peter's like, why not? I'm willing to die. Peter isn't good. Jesus is saying, I just told you earlier that I'm, I'm going to die for you. Would you die for me? No, Peter, no. That's, that's, that's not what is needed here. What's needed is for me to die for you. You can't die for me. I must die for you. And he continued to love. Even after Peter denied him three times and in the Gospels, you have this moment where Peter denies him a third time and Jesus looks at him. Did Jesus give up then? No, he continued. He continued to submit himself to be beaten, to be whipped, to be nailed to the cross and crucified. He continued to love so much that on the cross he says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. He endured the cross, despising the shame. It's a continuing love that he's loved us with. A constant love. And lastly, we see from this passage that it's a compelling love. Look in verse 35. Verse 35, it says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What is he saying? He's saying people will be compelled. They will know that you're my disciples because it's a compelling love. The love that Jesus has loved us with is a compelling love. It will compel people to draw conclusions. It will, it will make people see this is a different kind of love. And the love of Christ compels us. It compels us to give our lives, to love others as well. Jesus loved them despite their failings, not because they're worthy, he loved them so much that he went to the cross. That's the kind of love he was commanding them to in the upper room. And that kind of love is, it's a compelling love. You know, I don't know about you, but it's easy to love people who you find attractive. It's easy to love people that you, that can do something for us. Think about the people in your life. People who are easiest to love are the people who are nice to you. The people who are kind to you. The people who are faithful to you. Now think for a second, 
It's about the people who are unkind to you, people who are unfaithful, people who are difficult, who actually hate you. That was us. All of us were hating God. We were his enemies. And yet God so loved us that he sent his son and he came and he died. That's the kind of love with which Jesus has loved his disciples. You know, we can find examples in the world around us of people loving each other because some benefit or some desirableness attraction. And, and sometimes that love can last if those conditions last. But when people change, when people become less desirable, when people become less attractive, not capable of reciprocating love, when, when they're no longer capable of, of loving back, when they're not enjoyable, often people talk about giving up love. I don't, I've just fallen out of love with you. What they mean is that it's no longer easy. There's no longer any benefit. I don't feel those feelings anymore. I've grown out of love. Jesus has never grown out of his love for us. He loves us with a never-dying, never-ending love. He loved us so much that he died for us. He loves us so much that he continues to love us even when we fail and stumble. Not the qualities or behavior of us, but because he chose to love us. It's the kind of love that's only possible, though, because we've been made a new creation in Jesus. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, this love is not possible because it requires that we are born again, given a new nature, given the very nature of Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. If you place your faith in Jesus, he gives you a new nature. He gives you an ability. He recreates your desire so that now, because of his love, you want to love him in return. It's the kind of love that flows from being loved by Christ and abiding in his love. That's what he means in John 15 when he talks about abiding in his love. Remaining in his love, staying connected to his love is what enables us to love each other. You know, how does the world love, though? The world loves in a way that's self-seeking and false. But Jesus wants them to know, don't love like the world around you. Don't love like the world loves you. You know, the love of Jesus was risky. He risked everything. He gave everything. Be willing to love, to, to risk loving someone without them loving you in return. If you're rebuffed, if your others desert you. Not to love in return, but so that you might glorify God and live a life of gratitude for, for his love for you. It says, by this all men will know that you're his disciples. How are you loving how do you love the people in this church? How do you love the people in your small group? How do you love the people that you have a hard time getting along with? How are you loving your family? I, I know that this is a terribly convicting message. I was terribly convicted. I don't want to preach this message because I'm thinking, I don't love like this. I don't love this way. I, I'm very selfish. I'm very self-interested. I'm very self-aware in my love. When someone rejects me, I don't want to love them. When somebody argues with me, I don't feel love towards them. When somebody deserts me, I don't want to pursue them. But if I consider the love of Jesus for me, how he's fully, unreservedly, humbly, wholeheartedly chosen to love me he's pursued me he's persisted through sin and weakness and stupidity he's been gentle with me compassionate 
He's continued to love, to correct, to give up, to to die for me, to forgive me, to never fail. If I consider that kind of love, that's compelling. How do we talk to each other? How do we think of each other? How do we relate to each other? You see, everything that Jesus did is motivated by a desire to love. It's what motivated his thoughts about other people. Not what they could do for me or how they had offended him, but how he could win them with his love. How do we relate to each other? Do we, are we committed to resolve conflict no matter what? Choosing love, it means we choose love not because of common affinity or not because people are like us, because we look like them or they look like us or because they talk like us. We choose to love them because they belong to Jesus. He says love one another, not, not because of how they treat you, not because they're the same political party as you, not because they're the same color of skin as you, not, not because of those things, but because Jesus has loved us, because we're his family. Peter didn't understand that he needed Jesus to die for him. We need Jesus to sacrifice his life, to give himself in love. We needed Jesus to die for us so that we can love like this. Otherwise, it's just not possible. You see, but because we are now one with Christ, our old nature, our old selfish nature has been done away with. It doesn't mean that it, we're not tempted any longer, but our old selfish nature has been done away with. He's given us a new heart, and, and we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Why? Because Christ gave himself for us. And now we have an ability to love like Christ. You know what difference it would make in the world of people saw us loving each other like this and, and not divided as a church, not divided as a people, not factious? How do you speak about each other? How do you think about each other? Do you begrudge having to have people over in your house? When you love somebody, whether or not you agree with them, it reflects the love of Jesus. You see, Jesus broke through every cultural, political, and social barrier. He broke through the biggest barrier of all, our sin against God, because he loves us. He took on our hurt, he took on our shame, he took on our sin, he bore our burdens, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. Why? Because he loves you. There was no cost that was too much. What, what cost is too much for you? What cost is too much for you to love somebody else for? We had the, the biggest problem, the biggest cost Jesus took. You know what's separating you from someone else? In the body, disagreement and argument and offense, bitterness, resentment. Jesus bridged the gap in himself, the gulf that divided us and God. Now, sometimes the person you love might not want to love you in a turn. That's not, that's not what this is talking about. You can't make somebody love you. You can't make somebody reconcile you. You can't force a relationship, but you can control your own heart your own motives, your own behavior towards them. 
and, and that love after he's talked about how he's loved them with the same love the Father loves them and commanded us to abide in his love. In John 15, turn your Bibles over to John 15. We'll finish with this. John 15, verse 16. Going back to John 15, where we've been most of this series. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. And he says something interesting here. He says, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. And then he says, these things I command you. Why? So that you'll love one another. He kind of brings it all home. He, he kind of went on a little discourse in the middle from John 13 until now. He's coming back to love again. He says, you know what? How you're going to do this is not in your own ability. How are you going to do this is by asking the Father in my name. I'm telling you this so that you can love each other. So what does he mean? He says, if you ask the Father in my name, anything. Now, what's he referring to? I think primarily he's referring to abiding in his love and loving one another. That's the primary kind of context that this is bridge between chapter 13 and 15 here. He's, he's talking about loving one another, abiding in him, abiding in his love. And then he says, these things I command you. Why? So that you'll love one another. I'm commanding you to pray and ask in the Father's name. Why? So that you can do it. We can't love self-sufficiently. It requires us asking Jesus, asking the Father in his name to enable us. But here's the cool thing. It says he may give it to you so that you can love one another. So as we close, I just want to take a moment and consider all those areas where you may be aware you've not loved one another like Christ. I want you to think about how, how do I need now to respond in light of Christ's great love for me? How can I respond? Because he's made me alive and made me anew in response to him out of worship, not out of mere duty, but out of worship to him in response. How can I love other people? And then instead of turning inwardly and being self-confident, we need to stop and say, okay, now, God, Father, I'm asking this in Jesus' name. This is in accordance with how Jesus has loved me in Jesus' name. God, would you enable me? to love people like this. And he says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Go ahead, the band, go ahead and come up, if you will. And as they're coming up, I want you to think about our love. Is it a, is it a choosing love? How do you choose to love people? Where, where's God calling you to choose to love other people? Is your love a compassionate love? How how is God calling you to have compassion on people in your life and in this church? How is he calling you to choose that love? What does that look like? How is he calling you to have compassion? Is there somebody who's difficult? How is he calling you to continue in love? And then, how are you compelled by his love? Relying on his love. Let's think about those things. And let's not be condemned, but to say, Lord... We ask these things in your name, and would you enable us to love you in response? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we need you to enable us. Thank you for your grace, your goodness, that you do enable us. Thank you that you've not left us alone. You've given us the helper. Thank you that the helper convicts us where we've sinned, convicts us where we've judged wrongly, where we've been self-righteous. Lord, thank you for the helper that enables us to love in response to your great love. 
Father, thank you that this is in accordance with your will. So, Lord, we ask that you would enable us to do what you're calling us to do. And, Lord, thank you that you will. Let us abide in your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.